Welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. This MLK weekend, we're having a conversation with Dr. Clarence B. Jones, who was a personal friend, advisor, lawyer, and speechwriter for Dr. King. What you're listening to right now is part two of that conversation, so if you missed it, make sure to go back and check out part one first. Today, we're chatting about the March on Washington on August 28th, 1963. Well, that's where Dr. King delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech that you've all heard about in books, museums, and your high school U.S. history classes. Dr. Jones will set the stage for us at the hotel the night before the march, tell us about the speech writing process, and then talk about how it all went down the next day in front of 250,000 people in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Then, we'll chat about President John F. Kennedy's assassination later that year, the importance of his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And finally, Dr. Jones will leave us with some words of wisdom as we continue to deal with issues of racial inequality and social justice today. Dr. Jones, you were involved in drafting uh, the first part of the I Have a Dream speech. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, about that. Let me just give you some historical context. After the Birmingham events, which occurred in April and May of 1963, you had the March on Washington, which was scheduled to take place in August. Now, normally after such an intense campaign, he'd either go to the Bahamas, Jamaica, Los Angeles, and so forth. But after the civil rights leaders had met with President Kennedy in uh, June of that year, and they concluded they were going to have a march on Washington, it was fairly clear to everyone that he could not leave the country. He had to be around. I was at a meeting, and I I, I came home one day to learn that uh, my wife, in talking to Stanley Levison, had agreed to have us vacate our home and move into another house in our community so that Dr. King and his family could come and live in our home. And so during that period of time preceding the March on Washington, Dr. King stayed in my home in Riverdale. Now, I respected the fact that he was on his rest vacation, but during that period of time, particularly as the march got closer, we occasionally talked about the significance of the march and talked about uh, some of the things that he might consider saying. It's not as if he just, the day before the march, just sat down and thought about it for the first time. No, he'd given some thought to it, and he'd given some substantive thought to it. What accelerated uh, my participation was that the night before Tuesday, very close advisors of his who were learned that he was at the Willard Hotel, as well as I was staying at the Willard Hotel, they insisted that they have an opportunity to talk with Dr. King on the Tuesday night before the Wednesday march. Now, Dr. King was resistant. He was upstairs in his suite working on his speech. I was downstairs in my room, you know, available to him. He needed me. So he comes down, uh, had to be dragged down unwillingly, but he did it because of his respect for the people who were insisted to talk to him. And I remember sitting in this closed-off section of the Bullard Hotel, and the very first thing that was said to him was from Ralph Abernathy, his very close confidant. And he says, you know, Martin, these people are coming from all over the country. 
And what they want to do, they want to hear you preach. And uh, a professor from Morgan State University, who Martin had a great deal of respect for. And he said, no, no, Martin, I don't think they want to hear you preach. Many of the people coming have heard you preach many times. And a, and a labor leader there, a big supporter from the Union District 65 labor leader in New York, said the same thing. Yeah, they don't want to hear you preach, Martin. Many of them have heard you preach many times. They're looking for leadership of where the country should go from here. And, it became, you know, it came into a, a almost acrimonious back and forth discussion. So the discussion ends. I'm giving you the shorthand version. The discussion ends. And uh, I go back up in the elevator with Martin, and he sort of has the attitude like, like I'm glad that's over, <laughs> you know. But in anticipation, you see, I knew how his mind worked. And I also knew of some of the several discussions we had had earlier. So going up in the elevator, I had, I had prepared for him, which I gave to him in the elevator, a handwritten notes of how I thought he might consider opening his speech. And my handwritten notes, little did I know it until I actually heard the speech the next day, ended up being the first seven and a half paragraphs of the speech. And I was astounded. (laughs) My, My first reaction when I heard him speak, I thought to myself, Well, Martin must have really been tired. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. You know, you should know that I went to uh, I went to the Juilliard School of Music before I uh, went to uh, Columbia. That's right, clarinet player, right? But aside from being a clarinet player, as I learned to, there's something called um, the cadence in music. You know, you use notes or words so that they have a certain certain cadence. And I had listened to Dr. King speak so many times; I'd gotten. I tried to fit words into the cadence of his speech. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 
100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. I wanted to dramatize the uniqueness of where we were by being at the foot of the great emancipator, Lincoln, 100 years after the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I wanted to dramatize it in a way that ordinary person would come to understand. Okay. How can you be here 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation still asking to redeem a promissory note to justice that gets returned unpaid for insufficient funds? How can there be insufficient funds after 100 years? How can that be? That's, 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 I, you know, you have to, I use the examples to make, to make the point. You have to give words a kind of exemplar color that are understandable in everybody's life. You just can't go and speak in abstract terms. Everybody understands writing a check. <laughs> Somebody says to you, what, there's not enough money in the bank? <laughs> so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Often preachers use, use uh, uh, the metaphor of time, often talk about uh, the pain you're experiencing at midnight. And uh, they'll talk about how the pain seems so unbearable at midnight. And then the dawn comes. You see the sunlight. 
And you think that you think that the pain that you experienced at midnight was endurable? No, and behold, uh, you know those are things which are, which you, you learn by listening from their experience, and it's deep into the culture of African American experience. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. But during the course of, as he was delivering the speech, he was interrupted by Mahalia Jackson, who says, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. Because she had heard him speak in June, a few months earlier, in Cobalt Hall, in which he had used the phrase, I have a dream. But apparently, using it in a context in Cobalt Hall, evoked none of the kind of response he had at the March on Washington, but Mahalia Jackson, anyway, wanted to tell him about the dream. And when she shouts at him and say, tell him about the dream. See, I'm standing behind Martin King. And when she shouts at him, Dr. King puts down the written text that he had, and he grabs the lectern and looks out over there and starts rubbing his right foot up against his left leg. I say to somebody, these people don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a 
a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And so the rest of the speech was entirely extemporaneous until he got down to the last part of his speech, and he had an index card on which he quoted what a Negro preacher, an old Negro preacher says, Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. After the Birmingham campaign, the one that we talked about in part one of this episode with Dr. Jones yesterday, President John F. Kennedy delivered a speech on June 11, 1963, called The Report to the American People on Civil Rights. In that speech, he introduced what would become the Civil Rights Act, eventually signed into law on July 2, 1964. I'm therefore asking the Congress to enact legislation giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure, but many do. Tragically, President Kennedy never got the chance to see his vision become reality. Later that year, three months after the March on Washington on November 23rd, he was assassinated. And his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, became the president. Here's Dr. Jones to take us back to that moment. Let me just backtrack and give you something that uh, I don't often talk about, but I write about in my memoirs. When uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, and we were considering what would be the appropriate statement for Dr. King to issue on his assassination with the elevation of Lyndon B. Johnson, vice president, ascending to the presidency, we spent about five hours at Eastern Airlines Terminal in New York, politically analyzing the consequences of the assassination and what it meant going forward for the country. And it was at that point, at that time, 
that Dr. King developed a thesis arising out of our discussion with one another, that it was unlikely that there would be any fundamental political change in America on the issue of race relations and civil rights unless it was under the leadership leadership of a white political leader. And so Lyndon B. Johnson, white man from Texas, could not be more out of the South than he was. He was a quintessential man of the political power of the legacy of slavery in the Congress, in the Senate. And so if there was going to be any transformation on the issue of civil rights, it was a Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, uh, Civil Rights Bill in 1964 could not have been passed except for the Republican uh, leadership in, in the Senate and Congress. Could not have been done. A lot of, a lot of white Republicans okay, enabled the passage of the Civil Rights Bill. Southerners who had control of the Senate, but uh, it was the Republicans uh, who, who broke away and gave these uh, Lyndon Johnson the number of votes he needed. It was the Republicans who did that. It's important to remember that. Did you have a conversation with uh, with Dr. King on on July second, or or shortly thereafter? By phone, yes. I said, it was "Hallelujah." I said, you know, it was "Hallelujah." It was blessed, you know. But as we've seen, especially in the past year, issues of racial inequality and social justice didn't just disappear in 1964. So I wanted to ask Dr. Jones about what he makes of what's going on today. We spoke about Birmingham, right? You know, in Birmingham, the nation saw high-pressure fire hoses and police dogs attack young African-Americans, boys and girls, protesting segregation. And that experience being broadcast on the evening news across the nation electrified the country so that when a few months ago, the country saw a young man, George Floyd, under effective police custody, pleading for his life, saying, I can't breathe, and crying out to his mama and dying in police custody. The nation, again, was called to ask itself the same question that was asked at the March on Washington. What kind of country are we? Just what kind of country are we? So that the March on Washington was a moral call to the nation to redeem itself. Dr. King knew that there's no way that 12% of the population, what's going on, 12% of the population, Negroes, was going to impose itself on the will. It wasn't going to happen. It's only when a majority of the 88% of the population who were white understood it was in its self-interest to end this nonsense of racial segregation. But he raised the fundamental question uh, there, which was raised again with George Floyd. Just what kind of country are we? 
what kind of country morally permits this kind of behavior and does nothing? And that's why I say there is a moral link. There's a moral link between what took place in Birmingham, the March on Washington, and what happened to George Floyd. Um, I've read a lot of pieces on both sides. Everyone, it seems, is trying to claim Dr. King um, almost as a as a as a, a, a poster child, right? Like he would support right. their side, or he wouldn't support right. the other side. You know, he would he would be pro Black Lives Matter. He would be anti. He would be pro uh, in in favor of the protests. He would condemn the protests. He would say to do it this way more or less. You know, everyone seems to have a view of of how he would feel about what's going on today. What's your view, Dr. Jones? My view is that Dr. King uh, would weep in uncontrolled joy when he could just see the clips of people across the United States and outside of the United States. But particularly, he would, he would, he would weep and see people far beyond the 12% of the population that he purported to speak for at the March on Washington. Large percentage of white, Native American, Asian, Latino people have come to see and say the same things he was saying. So he would, uh, he would be so, so moved by the magnitude of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, that does not say that he might not be critical or offer some advice if they would want to hear it. After all, he was, uh, he had developed a, a very instinctive understanding of the uses of power. Okay. I mean, for example, let's take a thorny issue. Defund the police. Okay. And he was saying, no, no brothers and sisters, <laughs> no, we don't, we don't want to defund the police. I know what you're saying. You want to control the conduct of the police. But we don't want to defund them. We, do, we want to control the resources that go to the police. The reason we want to do that is because we in the African-American and other disadvantaged community, we need the police more than ever. We want to raise the level of conduct of the police to a new level in which they are responsive to our communities. Well, we don't want to be without them. But having said that, that's like even in our own movement, we had differences. Even in our own movements, we had differences. Now, he was not hesitant to, to, to challenge the direction of uh, the civil rights movement that he thought was inappropriate for us to take. That didn't mean that we, he didn't respect other leaders, but he felt he had an obligation to speak out. He understood the importance of black power, for example. But he understood if black power meant the exclusion of white participation in the exercise of power, he was not about that. That's not, no. He wanted 
black power to be on an equal basis with white power and other power. He didn't want to exclude white power. Just wanted them to be on an equal basis. And the other power that was not black was not going to make decisions for us. And with respect to the protests themselves, um, I've heard you. I've heard you speak on this issue before. You've called them. I think the word you use was like provocateurs, those who would pull the nonviolent movement in a violent direction, which has really become a, a part of the the narrative, right? Like opponents of the movement will say, "Oh, look at these these people. They're just looting. They're just you know they're out for destruction, and, and they're not really." Um, trying to, to get real change. Oh, I'm so glad you raised this issue because this goes to the whole question of the efficacy of nonviolence and the reason for nonviolence. So let's just look at this whole question of looting. There's nothing more than the people who are opposed to fundamental social change and justice would want than for those who want social change and justice to engage in violence. So from a political standpoint, they want it because they made a political calculus that if we engage in violence, the underlying substantive merit of what we have to say will be completely obliterated. Okay. Nobody will pay any attention to what we're trying to say. They'll pay attention to violence. Okay. So we have to understand that the, the clearest uh, uh, way for us to avoid being off message is to engage in violence because being off, engaging in violence is going to take the focus off the underlying message which we are nonviolently seeking to proclaim. Now that requires great discipline. It requires uh, when uh, a, a rock or a stone is being thrown at you, you don't pick up the stone and throw it back. Or you don't, out of anger, take a stone and throw it and break a window. Uh, you don't do that because that is precisely what those people who fundamentally oppose the content of your message want you to do. Thanks for listening to this special two-part MLK Day episode with Dr. Clarence Jones. If you enjoyed this conversation, just a reminder that we've got new episodes coming out every other Sunday on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Audible, and wherever else you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for joining, and this has been your host, Winston Chang. And this time, I'm going to let Dr. Jones close us out. No, I just want to commend you of taking the time to pause and reflect on the legacy of this extraordinary man. He was uh, not without faults, but he was one of the most extraordinary people in the 20th century. So thank you so much. <laughs>